Well, I guess we can get started. Um, I'm Mark Thornton, and I'm glad you're all here. It's the perfect number of people for this kind of talk. Um, you may be wondering what in the heck this is, uh, because it's something that's completely different than everything else at the conference, but it's still really uh, an issue for Austrian economists, and it's certainly something that was near and dear to my heart. Um, and at some point, I'm going to ask you to imagine yourself as having been born Catholic in Ireland in the late 1600s and to get into the mindset of the man that I'm going to be talking about who is Richard Cantillon. And in 1999, the Institute asked me to write an essay on Richard Cantillon for the book, 15 Greatest Austrian Economists. And Cantillon is really the first economist in that he created economic theory. And we, don't, we haven't talked about economic theory at this conference, certainly in the same way we do at Mises University or the Rothbard Graduate Seminar, where we're digging deep into elements of economic theory, but Cantillon is the first person to construct economic theory in the modern sense. And he did so systematically, not just one little theory at a time. Like before Cantillon's time, we had the quantity theory of money, the naive quantity theory of money. Um, but not really too much else. And what we're going to see just a little bit, bits and pieces of is that Cantillon was, after Cantillon, um, his influence permeated the entire Western world, particularly in France and then in England and Scotland. Um, and it really is what set off uh, David Hume and his writings on economics. Um, later, his friend Adam Smith, who was a philosopher as well. And in France, Cantillon was connected with all of the liberal elements of high society, the people on the outs politically. Um, the, the first minister of England, the deposed first minister of England was his friend and client in Cantillon's bank. And there was a lot of influence in France by Cantillon in terms of generating interest in economics, but the most important one was the physiocrats. Uh, 25 years later, they formed a school of economics. They published Cantillon's book for the first time, and they were the first school of economists, and then later Turgot and Jean-Baptiste Say, and really, this is the cradle of economic theory. So I wrote the essay, and I read Murray Rothbard's essay on Richard Cantillon, which is excellent, and then I read a lot of other sources for my article, and then I embarked on a research program of my own, sort of looking at Murray's suspicions and his conjectures and trying to fill in the details of what his, uh, what Cantillon's political economy and policy views were, um, and all sorts of things. And there's a lot of mysteries uh, about Cantillon. We don't know when he was born. We're not sure when he died or how he died. Um, he was a man of many, many mysteries. And one of the mysteries was that we didn't have an image of this man. 
Uh, he was very secretive. He was a banker that was sued a lot and charged with crimes and violations of the law. So he was always trying to hide in one of his many houses around Europe. Um, and so not having an image of him was one of those mysteries. And that's what I'm going to talk to you today about. Uh, there were some images on the internet associated with uh, encyclopedia entries, but they were always wrong. I, uh, doing my research, I realized that they would substitute other people from the same time that Cantio knew, like John Law from the Mississippi bubble um, uh, and other uh, people of the day. In 2005, I was vacationing in Europe and in Paris and one of the first things I did uh, was go to the Louvre Museum in Paris, which was the king's own residence uh, for a very long time on the banks of the Seine River in the heart of Paris. So the, after the revolution, uh, it was turned in, into a museum rather than a royal residency, because there weren't many royals left after the French Revolution. And one of the first rooms I came into was the La, La, La Croix room, uh, a famous art collector in France who collected 750 oil paintings, mostly portraits, and donated them to the Louvre, and it was the Louvre's first core collection for the Louvre. And as I walked into the room, I looked across the room, and of course the room is huge, um, and I looked across and I saw this painting, and for whatever reason, I instantly knew that the man in this painting was Richard Cantillon. I'm not an art historian. I don't play one on television. Uh, but instinctively, I knew that that was going to be a genuine possibility. And... There was one clue I had in mind that I could, I could check to see if it matched up right then and there. And that was that I knew um, an artist, a very, very important French artist of the time who worked in Paris during Cantillon's time, who had painted a painting of Cantillon's wife, which we see behind you over here. This is Mary Ann Mahoney, a distant relative of Richard Cantillon from Ireland, and this is her wedding portrait from 1722. And I, know, I knew that this painting was done by this artist over here, whose name is Nicholas de Largiere, who was, again, uh, a famous French portrait artist, uh, who I'll tell you a little bit about his story as well. So I walk over to the painting, and it's a big painting, and below it, it has the name Largiere. So, I mean, I had goosebumps in the doorway without knowing who the artist was. But when I got over there and read that, I was almost frozen in place, except I was dripping wet with sweat. And it said, Largier, 1715. Now, if the painting was actually 1715 and... The Louvre is obviously very knowledgeable about everything in terms of French art and art in general, then this could not have been the Cantillons. But 
I did know that Cantillon was married, and I did know they had a couple of children, one of which was a daughter. Uh, her name was Henrietta. Now, all the meantime, I'm researching these other articles, and I'm printing out papers from a lot of weird disciplines. I'll name a few of them. And this was my hobby for about 12 years. I would go home and read through these papers on facial recognition and uh, the theory of beauty and um, uh, French fashions of the early 1700s. I actually knew somebody at Auburn University who was a history professor, and that's what her research was um, in terms of uh, eight, 17th and 18th century French fashions. Um, so we have this painting. It's got the wrong date, uh, but at least it has the right artist. At least it has sort of a semblance of the Cantillon family, the connection to the wedding portrait. Um, but there's not going to be any direct evidence. There's no, not going to be any other face of Richard Cantillon out there to compare it to. I was wrong about that too, though, but we'll, we'll come back to that as you've actually already seen. Cantillon was a part-time art dealer. His main business was banking. He was a banker to the Irish emigre, Catholic emigre population from, from Ireland, uh, much of which settled in Paris and in, on the west coast of France. So sometimes you'll come across some strange names for French wines and brandies that doesn't sound French at all. Well, it's because people emigrated to uh, various regions, including uh, a lot of Irish people. Now, Largier, I said he was important, and uh, it's important to realize that uh, early in his career, he was a portrait artist for the king of England. So, I mean, he was at the very, early in his career, he was at the very top of his game. The king of England at the time was Catholic, and he was Catholic, obviously, and the king asked him to be put in charge of doing portraits of the royal family and in charge of the king's art collection. So it's a tremendous offer, which he turned down because he thought that the king was going to be killed and that Largier would be killed along with him. And apparently Largier was a very risk-averse person and he left and went back to Paris to become a portrait artist. He did mainly, in Paris, he, he shunned the French royal family, and he had most of his business with what was called at the time the rich lower class. So the class structure in those days was, you know, you were royalty, or you were clergy, or you were nothing. But during the preceding hundred years, the bourgeois class emerged in France and England and elsewhere where they weren't connected to the clergy, they weren't connected to the royalty, but they had a lot of money. And Largier chose that group to be his clientele because A, they didn't wear crowns and fancy robes and all sorts of things that you would have to paint. And they paid their bills promptly. <laughs> and he was, after all, in business. And he wasn't just in business. He was a professor in the premier art school in France, which he was made the director of. And he served as the director of the Ecole portrait artist, whatever that is, um, in France for several decades. So he was a big deal. 
Location-wise, uh, Cantillon lived near the Seine River um, between the Louvre and the road to the Mint. Okay, the Mint was just across the Seine. Um, and then on Cantillon's side was the Louvre or the King's Palace. And then Cantillon's road where his bank was and then the road to the Mint. So that is, you know, a big banking center, a big money center. Um, on Cantillon Street, they had um, this setup with a, um, where they basically hung people who were counterfeiting coins. And Largier Studio was about a 10 to 15 minute walk away. And Largier Studio was actually closer to John Law's bank, where he ran the Mississippi Company, created the Mississippi Bubble, and it was kind of like an early stock exchange where you could go buy shares and trade your shares, sell your shares in the Mississippi Company, uh, and ultimately the Mississippi Bubble. Cantillon worked for John Law in the Mississippi Company, at least for a while. So there's every reason to suspect that John Law, Richard Cantillon, and Nicholas de Largiere would see each other in this bank on the trading floor of these Mississippi shares. So back to the portrait. We've looked at the artist. Now the portrait, as I said, the 1715 date would not work because Cantillon would have been not successful yet, really. Uh, he would have just started his own bank. He wasn't married, didn't have any children. Uh, but Nicholas Largier was successful by then. He was married. He did have children. Uh, unfortunately, there is a resemblance between Largier and uh, Cantillon, but art historians have said they're not the same people. And the Largier did several self-portraits that we can compare, and he did several family portraits of him and his family. And his Largier's family, I think he had five daughters, um, and they were much older than Cantillon and Cantillon's uh, children. So in order for this to be the Cantillons, it would have had to have been painted in the early 1730s. When Cantillon had a daughter, he was married, and his son had died in childhood. So the, the, they only had one child remaining, which works in my favor. And then I discovered a book by the expert on Largier, um, Myra Rosenblum and several of her co-authors and they said that this painting must have occurred after 1730 because Largier's style of painting, his brush stroking and the paints that he used changed at that point probably because of some innovation um, in French art at the time in his school, right? He was running the school, and he was running a studio with apprentices in his studio. And then I found out from my friend, who is the French um, uh, fashion, thank you. <laughs> Why can't I get that word? Probably because I have no fashion. Um, and I didn't see this initially, but there is, you know, you see his pants, and you see kind of like a bare leg, but there's actually a stocking, silk stockings, and then there's a something coupling around 
here, and basically it was a fastener to fasten the stockings to the pants in men, which started in Paris in 1730. So it couldn't have happened any earlier than 1730. So this, is, again, is in my favor that um, these, this fastener here, which doesn't show up, I guess, um, on the screen, says to me... Okay, yeah. Yeah, this fastener right here. And while I'm at it, um, I will add that there's a dog here in the background, which took me a while, using the internet um, images. And these, of course, are just reproductions of the original. Um, my niece and nephew had to go without Christmas presents for this one. Um, but um, good for them. Uh, there's some dead birds over here. They're out in the country. Even though they're city folks, they're out in the country, which gives you uh, the impression that they're wealthy, well-to-do. Uh, they're out on a hunting trip. She's wearing the little red riding hood costume, uh, which was a popular color for um, being out in the country for... Uh, well-to-do women because when the mud got on your dress, it didn't show as much and it didn't stain as much red dresses as it would lighter colored dresses. So Little Red Riding Hood is actually has to do apparently with getting mud on your clothing. So, uh, yeah, I've learned a lot of really worthless stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I did have a lot of help. In addition to the historian, I know, fortunately, I know three, uh, not European scholars, but three American art historians uh, who helped me out a lot with this and encouraged me along the way. In terms of the price of the painting, in terms of the amount of wealth involved, uh, this painting indicates somebody who has enormous wealth. Um, Largier was the most expensive person to paint your portrait, and not anybody could get into the queue to have their portrait done. You had to have be an, kind of an insider in his group, that Catholic group, um, especially if you wanted a good portrait. You know, Protestants need not apply. Um, he was, after all, the premier professor and director of the academy. Uh, this painting is incredibly large. I mean, it is e enormous. You could not put a painting like this into any American home, even though American homes are enormous. Um, so that made it much more expensive. And to give you some idea of how large the uh, canvas is itself, I had them put up uh, what the size of the canvas was. And I was going to put it in terms of the frame, the outside frame, but the outside frame would actually bleed over onto the door jam and the window jam, so it wouldn't have fit. So this is just the painting itself. It measures two meters wide and one and a half meters tall. And I thought to myself, why would it measure exactly two meters wide and one and a half meters tall? The number of people in the portrait, more than one. Obviously, the cost goes up because painting the face um, is the most expensive part. The studio artists or apprentices probably would have painted the background. The advanced apprentices might have did the outlines of the clothing, and then Largier would do the faces. So each face would cost you that much more. Uh, just the canvas, by the way, the canvas was probably made out of Belgium lace, which was the world's premier material. And Cantillon actually has a section in his book where he complains 
about the extremely high cost of Belgian lace and that one bolt of Belgian lace, he calculates, would have been the equivalent of champagne wine, wine from the Champagne region, equivalent to 1,600 acres of vineyards to make the wine that would equal just the canvas itself. And finally, and most importantly, is hands. Hands were even more difficult to paint than faces. Most portrait artists did not paint your hands, so you had to have your hands behind your back or your hands behind some other person or under a comforter or something. Uh, most people didn't paint hands. So in this portrait, you see all six hands. So there's probably, in terms of the cost or price of the portrait, there's probably nothing higher priced other than maybe a giant mural of the Paris City Council or something like that. But even then, they wouldn't have their hands painted and they would have teeny, relatively small faces. So I spent a lot of work comparing the family members. I didn't have any comparison for uh, Richard Cantillon. I did for the wife. And when I asked Cantillon's biographer, Anton Murphy, if this person right here could it be that person up there? He said, absolutely not. This Irish girl here is too beautiful to be this plumpy French aristocrat over here. Um, and so I spent a lot of time with facial recognition, theory of beauty, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I'll note that the, the most beautiful positioning of the face is straight on. So you see symmetry in the face. You don't see the distinctiveness of a profile image where you see the nose and the ear, um, you know, maybe too much cheekbone or not enough jawbone. Um, there's only two real cases where people have their image in profile. One of them is on mugshots so that people can tell your distinctiveness rather than your symmetry, which is an indicator of beauty. And the other is on coins of kings so that the people, the day-to-day -day people who wouldn't see the king would have a recognizable image of the king in their hand. So in the wedding photo, she's got a frontal image. On the family photo, she's got a near profile image, which doesn't indicate beauty and gives you a, just a different look entirely. And I've got artists who painted uh, the same face in three different front on, side angle, and profile, and it does change the way you look. It's something that artists would practice um, back in the day. Um, and so this is a non-flattering image. And it's also of the right side of her face, which the, your right side of your face gives off less expression than the left side of your face. Who would have ever known? But it's something you know now forever for selfies. <laughs> okay, so whenever you're in a selfie, always sort of go a little bit to your left, like that. I know you're, you're doubtful. <laughs> Try it. Go look at your pictures or go look at somebody else's pictures on Facebook and see if you don't notice the difference of expression, not beauty, but expression when you're turned this way rather than this way. I know. But suffice it to say that not only did Cantillon have his wife painted in that uh, position, but Largier also painted his wife in that position on a regular basis. And you can speculate as to why. Maybe they didn't want you know, their wives being 
seen as beautiful and expressionful uh, or, or whatever. Maybe they didn't like their wives. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, that was another commonality in terms of uh, beauty and expression in, in the face and why there's a little bit of a difference. I've asked a lot of independent people to compare the images. They think they're the same person. And also I asked people to compare this photograph of Henrietta at age seven, probably, to a later portrait that she did when she was in her early 40s, and the resemblance is definitely there. Um, yeah, so in 1732, let's say, Cantillon would have been late 40s, Marianne would have been mid-30s, Henrietta would have been seven years old. And a seven-year-old girl sitting next to two adults sitting down would be that tall. I've actually measured the whole thing over and over again. And, and that's what you would get in a well-fed young lady of seven or eight years old would be that tall. So it all matched up. In addition, um, the young girl is holding sheet music right here. The sheet music is painted as if it's printed lined music paper. And then it's painted as if somebody hand did the notes on the music. And I had this blown up and I looked, I could identify a few words and it's possible that it, it came from a... Uh, not a religious song, but a folk song that was indeed related to this Irish militant political group that wanted to restore Catholicism. It was called the Jacobite Movement. Um, and it's possible that that song was a Jacobite-inspired uh, melody. So uh, that's there. And, you know, if this is the size of the manuscript and I'm standing here in the Cantillon's house looking at it, you could read the music, even though it's upside down. So it had to look like real sheet music, whereas in here it just looks like a piece of paper to most of you. You can't really tell. They're in bourgeois dress, not royal dress, not clergy dress. Um, Cantillon has a wig, a banker's wig, which if this is Cantillon, he's wearing a banker's wig, a bourgeois profession. Uh, bankers had long, curly, parted in the middle wigs with long flowing hair. Here it comes down to onto his shoulder blade, and then all the way down his back, which is coincidentally virtually the same wig pattern here, although the hair comes down a little bit further uh, in this image, which was done supposedly in 1720, right after Cantillon made a killing in the Mississippi bubble. So you're saying that's Cantillon? Yes. Uh, okay, I thought... Maybe you said that at the beginning and I missed it. I said that at the time, I didn't know okay. of another image. Okay. This painting is actually in an IRS warehouse. Uh, the, uh, the Wildenstein art empire was uh, found guilty of laundering money through art sales, and they shut the company down, and I, I found that image, um, but, and I, I'd love to buy it, you know, <laughs> except it's way... after you had gone to the Louvre and seen Oh, yeah, no, no, this is, this is fairly recent okay, okay. that I found this. Okay. It's just that this painting took place in 1720, yeah. they think, and look at his face there, Versus here, he's fatter. They're all, and she's heavier. They're living in Paris and they've got money to burn. I mean, they've got their own cooks and, you know, everything. But 
there, there must have been good restaurants back then too, right? Um, but he's definitely older and a little heavier. He's still got the, the, the sort of sunburn image that you'd expect on an Irishman from Western, Southwestern um, Ireland, County Kerry, where he, Marianne, were born. Um, I'm going to come back to this, but I didn't realize this until fairly long into the process, like I've been working on this for like 10 years before I realized this, is that right here, he's got a gun. He's got a French pistol. You can see it a little bit better up here, but he's holding a French pistol. The French pistols were like that, the barrels were like that long. Bankers always carried pistols. Bank employees always carried pistols. Their couriers always had pistols to defend the money. And if you went out into the country to shoot birds, you'd use a French pistol. But instead of putting a metal ball in the gun, you'd put buckshot in the gun. So you'd have a chance at hitting the birds. So a, a French pistol of the day, you could use it for defense or you could use it for hunting, but it would be almost inconceivable for Cantillon not to own an arsenal of weapons, including uh, probably of select high-grade French pistol. Now, also towards the end, I realized, well, if Cantillon is Irish and if Mary Ann is Irish and they're related, and obviously Henrietta would be related, um, I had this thought, and, you know, the Louvre, the staff at the Louvre almost never returned my emails. I mean, I must have sent them at least 100, and they never responded. But at one point, when this question came into my head, the old director of 17th and 18th century French portraitures at the Louvre had retired and a new person had stepped in and I wrote her and said, could you please take a look at the painting and look at the color of their eyes? And this is after I spent weeks looking at the portraits and trying to, you know, blow up the image to see if I could see their eyes. And I learned from a different literature that our perception of color at a distance is influenced by the colors around the color that you're looking at. So that because of the dark background, the eyes all look brown. And French people, French French people, not people from France, but people who are genetically French, have brown eyes and usually have brown hair. And I said, would you please look at the painting and look at their eyes and tell me if all of them are blue? And she actually wrote back and said, how did you know? And I, well, I didn't really know, but Cantillon, his wife, and therefore genetically his child, were from southwestern Ireland where blue eyes are predominant. Whereas in central France, that would be a genetic something, abnormality. So I knew that if I had some genetic evidence, I thought, well, I think I've got this. Um, and so apparently that's the case. Um, there's um, some speculation that I'd like to put out there. 
in terms of positioning in the painting, as I said, they usually painted them overlapping one another. Having this missing part here is extremely uncommon. It's extremely uncommon. It, it increases the cost of the canvas, the paint, and everything else. So portrait artists just wouldn't have the, it in them to put in a big separation. But if Cantillon's son had lived, he would have been a few years older than Henrietta and would have stood with his face right about here in the image. Um, and again, the ratio or proportions of the painting are two meters by one and a half meters or three by four. So the painting is proportionally three of four, three people of a family of four. Of course, why would it measure out into meters? No one can answer that question, so I looked into it. And the, the meter was instituted after the French Revolution. Uh, would have been a half a century later. So there's no way I thought that um, you know, meters of, well, did anybody even think in terms of meters 50 years before they set up the meter unit of measurement? And I thought, well, it couldn't be. But it turns out that Christopher Wren, the most famous architect in England or the world at the time, actually advocated a meter unit of measurement in England. And of course, he was measuring buildings and bricks and all sorts of stuff, and he wanted something that his workers and his suppliers could use, and so he advocated this meter unit of measurement to be used throughout the world. And I thought, well, that's great, because Christopher Wren's house was, and some of his famous buildings were virtually in the same neighborhood as Cantillon's London home. Uh, but who would think that the French Revolution meter would be the exact same distance as what Christopher Wren was talking about? Because, you know, they used astronomical sorts of units to try to come up with something, um, you know, where a ball goes back and forth or, you know, just, I don't know. That, uh, that's something I didn't delve into. But it turns out that Christopher Wren's meter is exactly the same distance as our meter. That doesn't mean anything except it's very weird. One clue that I left out that I think is the most interesting, connecting all of these people together, really, is in the hand gestures themselves. The fact that there were hands in uh, the Cantillon paintings and in the Largiere family paintings. Uh, we see six of them up here. This is the Largier, one of the Largier family portraits. And again, there's, there's a little bit of overlap, but not really. Um, this hand gesture is important and possibly his, but I didn't have a good, good enough image for that. Um, this is actually just a, a thumbnail thing that's blown up, so it's really bad. Um, and actually, there's a painting in the Dallas Museum uh, that they don't know. They know Largiere did it, but they don't know who's in it. And one of the persons in it is his wife, and another person is the oldest daughter when she was about 11 years old. Um, they didn't believe me either. The Louvre doesn't believe me either, by the way. Um, Okay, 
So there's Marianne, her hand gesture down here. And basically the hand gesture, no matter what way you turn it, is basically looks like this. I call it the pistol grip hand gesture, where you've cocking, barrel, trigger finger, stock. That's what I call it. Seems to make sense to me. Uh, and it's easy to remember. Um, this is the 1720 version. Again, the pistol grip hand gesture, the cocking, the barrel, the trigger finger, the stock. Um, Largier was known for his hands, so a lot of his portraits had hand gestures, but he almost never used the pistol grip hand gesture. Except in every case of the Cantillons and his own family. And a few others who were probably also part of the Jacobite movement. Another famous painting in the Louvre that they don't understand either, but who is a, an American economist to tell the lofty, high-minded art people of Paris who are the directors of the Louvre, or Louvre. He's also got a pocket watch in his hand here that you can see a little bit better. Um, the pocket watch, the watch, the clock, they were all new things. The, the pocket watch is the difference between, you know, back then it was the difference between a desktop computer and an iPhone. Okay? So if you had a pocket watch, you had money. Cantillon actually complains in his essay about the high cost of replacing the spring in his watch. He says it's only got like, you know, a penny's worth of steel in it, and yet it cost me an arm and a leg to get that spring replaced. But this portrait is in the Louvre. It's one of their famous paintings. Uh, it's by Largier, and it's called... Um, a study of hands. And it's the equivalent of a barbershop pole. In the old days where barbershops would have the sort of, um, oh, that cylinder out front, it would have a light in it and it would turn around and it looked like a peppermint stick, red and white peppermint stick. Well, this is kind of like what an artist would do. It would say, I can do hands. I can do all kinds of hands. I can do delicate hands. I can do hands that can button. I can do hands that, fingers that can fold. And all sorts of things here. Delicate, manly, uh, so on and so forth. I can do a clenched fist. But right in the middle, sort of set back and kind of dull or shaded, is this hand, which essentially is the pistol grip hand. The pistol grip hand gesture, and it's holding, this hand is holding a plate, and on the plate are a red and white rose. The, wet, the red and the white rose were symbols of the Jacobite movement. In other words, they were the secret symbol of this political movement that wanted to overthrow the, king of, the Protestant king of England. So you see the red and the white flowers in her hair um, and, and so on. That, those were kind of like the secret symbols of the Jacobite movement with the red and the white rose. They had lots of other symbols. And everybody knew that the red and the white rose were, you know, if you were doing that, they kind of knew uh, what you were up to. But it's interesting that it shows up here. And again, the, uh, 
the poor people at the Louvre don't really know what's going on. But that's basically what I did for about 12, and 12 years. Now, it wasn't consistently at doing that. And believe me, I didn't burn all my weekends uh, doing that kind of stuff. But um, I was working on Cantillon's economics through a lot of that period, and I still am, actually. Um, and uh, But this was a really interesting and fun diversion, something a little outside of what I'm used to and, uh, and good at, frankly. I, I mean, all the stuff that I've talked about in here, I don't claim to be expert in, but I did at least try to, in many cases did, uh, consult with the experts. And eventually, I got it published in the Huntington Library Quarterly, which is a journal in Los Angeles, California, at the Huntington Library, which is one of the premier places on English, uh, I guess it's 18th, 17th and 18th and 19th century political thought. And they happen to have the correspondence of Cantillon's first employer and some of the letters from Cantillon to that employer, so I thought, well, maybe I'll send it to them. And they, they accepted it, and they threw out a lot of my evidence, um, which pissed me off. Um, and that's why you're having to endure it all. Because they, they said, oh, this is obvious, you know. Um, but in any case, there's a write-up of the article in the back, and if you take a photograph of the QR code, it'll download a copy of the article into your phone. So thank you very much for paying attention and listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them.